Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Gracious Lord, you command us to love, but we are often confused what love is and even use the concept of love to show disregard for your word. Therefore, we ask you to work through the words of today's sermon that we may see when we are being unloving, but also to know how to show our love for you with others. Amen. Our text for our sermon is recorded in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all the mysteries and have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away everything I own, and if I give up my body that I may be burned, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not behave indecently, it is not selfish, it is not irritable, it does not keep a record of wrongs, it does not rejoice over unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never comes to an end, but if there are prophetic gifts, they will be done away with. If tongues, they will cease. If knowledge, it will be done away with. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when that which is complete is come, that which is partial will be done away with. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put away childish things. Now we see indirectly using a mirror, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully just as I was fully known. So now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. This is the word of our Lord. Brothers and sisters in Christ, in our gospel lesson, in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, on the night Jesus is going to be betrayed, right after Judas departs to betray him, Jesus tells the other eleven, a new commandment I give you, love one another just as I have loved you. So also you are to love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So that is to be the identifying characteristic of Christians. Love. Now, it's out of love that we want to share the Word of God, but for example, if we want to share the Word of God so that we can grow our church, just so we can have bigger offering, we're definitely not showing love, are we? But how is this a new commandment? After all, the Ten Commandments are summarized by love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. But you know what? Those Ten Commandments, all they can do is tell you, this is what you're supposed to do, and they can tell you, you've screwed up. They never give you the power to keep one of their demands. And what makes this a new commandment is the gospel motivation. Jesus is going to be betrayed that very night in just a couple hours. He's going to die for our sins. He's going to rise victorious and he's going to send the Holy Spirit to work through the message and enter your heart and give birth to a new person that is intimately connected to Jesus so that you grow the fruits as Jesus created that new man to do and one of the major fruits you grow that all of them are connected to is love. That's what makes it a new commandment. You're empowered to do it by the new man that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection gives you. Now, in today's text, the word that's used for love is the Greek word agape. And in the New Testament, that word always means an undeserved love. Now, we love our children because they're our children, but maybe those neighbor brats, right? 
We might love one another because we get friendship out of each other, but an undeserved love. God had an undeserved love for you and I because He saw we were stuck in our sins and He bore the punishment for us. So in our sermon text today, we will ask the question, how Christian is our love? Now, the Corinthians had a problem, brothers and sisters in Christ. And if you ever feel like your church is screwing up, read the first Corinthians because they sure made a lot of mistakes. And and I'm thankful that the Lord had Paul straighten them out and we can see what to do with that. And one of the mistakes they made besides uh, following different people, say, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, they were getting envious of each other's spiritual gifts. And the gift that they thought was the greatest, you were a big shot if you could do this, was speaking in tongues. And so the Apostle Paul addresses their motivation for wanting to speak in tongues. Verse 1 says, If I speak with the tongues that men communicate with, or even the tongues which angels communicate with, but I do not have love, then I've become ringing brass or a clanging cymbal. You ever seen one of those electronically battery-controlled monkeys that just sit there and bang the cymbals? Bang, 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 bang. Give one of those to your kid when you're trying to concentrate, especially a young child, and see how long it takes before that gets on your nerves. These aren't being used for music. These are inanimate, and they're just going, bong, bong, bong. Paul's point. If I want to speak in tongues, and I don't want to do it out of love, I might as well just be going, clam, clam. Clam! Until people finally say, please, knock it off. He says, I have become ringing brass or a clinging cymbal. We've got to remember the reason why God gave the ability to speak in tongues was that all of the scriptures had not been written yet. And he wanted people to hear in their native language so they could clearly understand that good news of God's love for us that led him to take on human flesh and be perfect in our place and take our punishment and give us eternal life. If the motivation for speaking in tongues was to glorify themselves, they were going gong, gong, gong. But if the motivation in wanting to speak in tongues was to clearly communicate the word of God, then they were truly having the right motivation. But he continues, we've already cleared out that gift of love, he says, and if I do have an ability to prophesy or the gift of prophecy, and I've perceived all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and I do have all the faith so that I could move mountains, but I do not have love, then I am nothing. Now, we often think a prophecy is predicting the future. But prophecy in the Bible as a whole is proclaiming the will of God. And it may be the will that's going to happen in the future, such as the end of times. And so, who had the gift of prophecy? Oh, yeah, the Apostle Paul. He wrote a major chunk of the New Testament. Who had the gift of prophecy? Men like Isaiah and Moses and Jeremiah. They're actually getting to record the word of God. But you know what they did after they were inspired to write it? They studied it. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's a lot of mysteries. There's things that you cannot understand in this world. You will not find the good news of God's love for you unless you either read it in the scriptures or God sends somebody to you with the scriptures. A mystery. There are many mysteries that God has made the mysteries. How can this be? All we can say is it's a miracle and we accept it by the faith God has given us. For example, I already mentioned the one that you're united to Christ so that one of the many fruits you grow is love and he's just built that into you because you're connected to him as a branch is to the vine. The mystical union of all believers. How that can be? We leave that to God. We accept it by our God-given faith. How Christ's body and blood can be present in the Lord's Supper? 
Well, that's God's problem, not ours. We simply believe it and are thankful to rejoice in the comfort. So he says, if I got those mysteries. And then he says, if I have all knowledge. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I often do Bible study and I preach on text and I can turn around and go back sometimes even a week after having preached on a text and restudy and go, wow, there's a neat gem I missed. But if he says, if I had all of that, I can prophesy, I know the mysteries, I have all the knowledge. Only one person has ever had that, and that's Jesus Christ, the God-man. And then even to have a faith that can move mountains. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's something amazing there. Imagine if, you know, I'm a Corinthian or somebody wants to boast in his gifts, and I turn to Casper Mountain, I say, hey, be uprooted and be planted in the sea. If I'm not doing that out of love... Do you think the people who live on Casper Mountain right now will appreciate suddenly being doused into the depths of the sea? Do you think the people that enjoy doing recreation on Casper Mountain or are driving on it would appreciate it? If I want to move that mountain and the reason isn't for truly love for God and love for my neighbor, I can actually be doing them a world of harm, right? And all that it would be wanting to boast in myself. I've got all the knowledge. I can move this mountain. But what does the Apostle Paul say? But I do not have love, then I am nothing. We want to boast on ourselves. We want to make ourselves something. No, if I don't have that love, if my reason for doing it isn't God's love for me and God's love for you, then I'm nothing. Zilch. No matter how much I want to make myself out to be something. Verse 3 says, And if I distributed at all my belongings and I handed over my body so that I could be burned, but I do not have love, then I'm benefited nothing. You'd be surprised how many people greedily will give away uh, their possessions hoping to gain something back. And even turn themselves over to martyrdom. In the medieval ages, this was the big thing. You become a monk, you give up everything, and, and you can turn around and earn your forgiveness. And even earn more, you can earn forgiveness for others. But brothers and sisters in Christ, there again, if I'm not doing that out of love for God, and there were plenty of people, and the Apostle Paul is one of them, who had the choice to deny their Lord and live or stand by their Lord and die, lose everything. And what did the Apostle Paul choose? Because the Lord's love was in his heart, he chose to stand by his testimony. But he did that out of love for you and I, so that you and I could see how valid it is. But if he did it for any other reason, he says, then I am benefited nothing. If I think I'm doing it to gain people's favor, people's esteem, or think I'm doing it to earn salvation, if it's not purely out of God's love for me in my heart to show it to others, boom, benefited nothing, does me no good. So how Christian is our love? What is the motivation for using our gifts? If it's anything other than God loves me, and I want you to know his love, I'm blessed to get to show his love, then we've got the wrong motivation, don't we? But we're thankful that in that new commandment, by the Holy Spirit, he empowers us to do this. So we continue on as the Apostle Paul shows us what love actually looks like. And clearly, we're talking about how we communicate as a congregation, and a bride represents the church. So we often apply this to marriage, but he's talking about how you and I treat each other and our fellow man here. Love is patient. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, Jesus had a time where twice in his life, the beginning and the end of his ministry... He saw the money changers in the temple and he had a righteous indignation. He had a righteous anger and he cleared it out. And there are times when people can be coming at us like a false teacher where it's finally time to show a righteous anger. But we don't do that so well because we have a sinful nature. 
Love is patient. It's willing to put up with a lot. It's willing to see our brother or sister in Christ who keeps struggling with the sin and be patient with them. Love acts in a kindly manner. Love is not filled with jealousy. Now, God tells us he's a jealous God. He will not have something else have first place in your heart. There's a place he created in your heart for him. And when he has that place, it's because he has put the new man in you and you are eternally saved. But we can get jealous as a congregation, can't we? (laughs) You know, so-and-so sings a lot better than me. and I can be jealous because they sing loud. Or I can thank the Lord because I'm a pretty lousy singer. And I can be thankful that there's somebody that I can follow and help lead the congregation through the hymns, right? We can get jealous of the gifts God's given us, and that's not love. Or we can recognize that God's given each one of us certain gifts and we can be happy that they're all being used to edify all of us and to bring our unbelieving neighbor into the faith. And so we already covered in the first section, love is not boastful. Love is not conceited. Maybe in English today we'd say it doesn't get a swollen head. Look at how look at the gifts God has given me. Aren't I great? That, that's not love. That's loving ourselves, isn't it? Jesus could have been conceited because he's perfectly righteous. But instead, he lived as your righteousness and has credited you and I with it. I like the next verb there. It isn't goaded into irritation. It's a picture of being poked, 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 poked. Like the child who mom and dad get to sleep in on Saturday morning and they should sleep in, but they get up early. and Mom, 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 what? Mom's been goaded into irritation. And brothers and sisters in Christ, let's not kid ourselves. Even members of our congregation who truly mean well, they can can have a particular pet thing they're working on and they can be doing it the wrong way out of truly good motives and they can get to that point where you want to scream, Stop it! Goodness, you're driving us nuts! But imagine if Jesus... If God the Father and God the Holy Spirit treated us that way, you sin against me by the minute just in your thoughts. Jesus isn't goaded into irritation. He washes our sins away. And the only way we can be stopped from being goaded into irritation is to have our sins washed away. It takes a miracle of Jesus empowering us with that new man. It doesn't keep a record of being wronged. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, I've learned there are times when we see brothers or sisters who struggle with sin, we can identify saying, that's Joe Blow's particular pet sin, and we'll work with this. This is saying, you sinned against me today, you did the same thing last week, and oh, you did a doozy two years ago. But you know what? You know the miracle that keeps us from doing that? The devil goes up to the Lord and he says, look, look at your sins. Look, I got a list of them. And God says... I don't know what you're talking about. All I see is my son's blood all over that list. And God has put that kind of forgiveness in us. Now, we have a sinful nature. So again, we need to be empowered to do this. But I've often learned when somebody is really wronging against me, the wonder is God comes with his word and reminds me, Fred, I've removed your sin. And then all of a sudden, it's easy to forgive the person because I've been forgiven so much. It doesn't rejoice over unrighteousness. This should be a no-brainer, right? I mean, we're Christians, we're righteous. But in its context, what it's saying is what our law courts often say, two wrongs don't make a right. This person is messing with me, and now I'm going to mess with them, and they've got it coming. That's wrong. That's unrighteousness. We don't rejoice in that. Jesus became our righteousness. 
Jesus has given us the new man again so that we're empowered to do this. But it rejoices with the truth. And we want to remember that the truth is the good news of forgiveness. You'll never find that in the world apart from God's word. And when we hear the good news of forgiveness for us, we rejoice. And when God privileges us to tell others the good news of forgiveness in Christ, we rejoice to share it. And so it says, I like this in verse 7, it says, literally it shelters over all. Every one of us has sins we struggle with. Do we sit back and condemn each other? Or do we look at each other's weaknesses and say, let me be your strength? If we have somebody, for example, who has an addiction, maybe an alcohol addiction, maybe it's not smart for me to practice my Christian freedom and drink alcohol in front of them. True Christian love will say, let me help you keep that away so that you are not tempted to fall. In true love, as God has sheltered us with the new man and with his word, we shelter over each other. We're taking care of each other that way. It trusts all. There's another way of saying we assume the best until proven that we can't. This is just another way of saying don't bear false witness against your neighbor. It hopes for all. Oftentimes it can be very hard to continue sharing the good news with our neighbor. It can be very hard to keep forgiving that person who seems to be goading us. We always have that hope that God is going to work through our love and the word he privileges us to proclaim that they will be able to, to overcome that. And he's done that for us. He daily forgives us and empowers us. And so it says, it puts up with all. And, and the, the Greek verb there is actually remaining under a load. We bear our brothers and sisters' crosses even when they themselves become a cross. Why? Because Jesus bore the big cross for us and has empowered us to do it. And so verse 8 says, love never falls. God has put his love in your heart. And even at times when your sinful nature is winning out, God says, come to my word, I'll nourish you, and I will keep you able to stay under that load so you don't fall. How Christian is our love? We've seen our motivation is not ourselves, but that love that God has given us and we want to share it with others. And now we see what love looks like. It's not just an emotion. It's actions that God has done to us and that empowers us to do the same for others. Now, when I went through that list, if your sinful nature got you to say, that's right, and this congregation needs to start doing that, or I didn't get that and I want it, you've already missed it. That's the way our sinful nature thinks. This list is never what we demand of others. This list is what we demand of ourselves out of thanks for God because of the new man he's given. If others do it for me, that's a blessing and I thank God, but it's not what I demand of them. It's what I hold myself accountable for because of Christ and his love for me. Ultimately, do we see its great priority? Verse 8 says, love never falls. Yet whether its ability is to prophesy, they will be set aside. And brothers and sisters in Christ, it does appear that we have the New Testament in its entirety. I, I can't say that with 100%, but it sure tells us everything we need to know. So most prophecies come to an end, hasn't it? We have everything we need to know to be saved. God gradually revealed that starting at Adam and Eve. But when, when John wrote the last words of Revelation, we even know what it's going to look like on the last day. So it already seems to be set aside. And we know when Christ returns, we're not going to need prophecy, even if it's not completely set aside yet. Or if it's tongues, they will have come to a stop. Recall that mankind spoke one language until the Tower of Babel. And when Christ returns, we will speak one language. But we have to admit even now, thanks to the Internet and the way we're so connected through the world. It amazes me. The other day I was reading, I looked up an old sermon in German, hit the translate button. Wow! Way faster than I could translate it. It already seems to be coming to an end. 
Sometimes it makes me think we truly are at the end of times. But like I said, when Christ returns, we're not going to need tongues because we'll all speak that same language. And he continues, or is it knowledge? It will be set aside. Because when we have Christ, when we're standing before him, we'll have the full knowledge, won't we? So he says, because we know from a fragment or a portion and we prophesy from a portion. God has made it that we have everything we need to know to be saved. But we don't know everything yet, do we? I constantly study the word of God and I constantly learn new things. There's always a new fragment. But brothers and sisters in Christ, when Christ returns, we'll have the whole big picture. And so he says, but when the completeness comes, the fragmented will be set aside. You got a puzzle and it's missing some pieces and it's always going to be missing some pieces. Or you got the big picture. We get the big picture when Christ returns. So he explains, when I was an infant, I kept on speaking as an infant. I kept on thinking as an infant. I kept on reasoning as an infant. When I then became a man, I set aside infantile things. When Christ returns, we have the completeness, we have the maturity. And the amazing thing is, in many ways, we already have that maturity as we study the word of God now and are able to put aside those infantile needs for revenge because when we have Christ's true love and we truly understand that, then we truly have a mature love, don't we? So he explains one more time in verse 12. In fact, now I see things in a reflection through a mirror, but then face to face. Now I only know in a fragment, but then I will be fully known just as I was fully known. I use mirrors to back up my car out of the driveway. They're a great thing. You know, they kind of wrap that one on the passenger side so you cover more of a blind spot. And what does it say? Objects may be closer than they appear. It's not perfect. But when Christ returns and our sinful nature is ripped away, or or if we go to heaven first in death and our sinful nature is ripped away face to face. And that's a beauty of God. Paul says, I will know just as I am fully known. Because God fully knew you before he said, let there be light. And you will have perfect knowledge of God as you stand face to face with your maker and your shepherd. So in verse 13, he wraps it up. He says, yet now these three, faith, hope, and love, continue remaining. Now he's actually talking logically. Because he's gone through all the gifts and he's shown how all of them are going to come to an end. And the only ones that now remain are faith, hope, and love. These are all gifts of the Holy Spirit that God gives us. But he says, but love is the greatest of these. Why? Because love is what binds it all together. It's God's love for you that led him to die for you, that led him to send his Holy Spirit into your heart to believe he rose for you, created that new man which actually does the believing, which is faith. So your faith comes from God's love and hope. We confidently can expect the promises of Scripture because God has given us faith in them. Why can I confidently and you confidently expect that Christ is going to return and give us the new heavens and the new earth? Because He loves us and He's put His love in our hearts so we love Him so we know that we're His sons and daughters and that's our inheritance. So love binds it all together and again when Christ returns, we're not going to need faith anymore. It's going to be right in front of us. Hope, we're going to receive what we hoped for. But God's love for us and our love that will be made perfect for each other and for God will stand for all eternity. So we ask that question, how Christian is our love? Is it the motivation for using our gifts? God's love for us so that we are privileged to share that love for others. Then we truly have a Christian love, the right motivation. Do we know what it looks like? It's not what I demand of others. It's what God has put in my heart that I show others as God has shown his love to me. And do we see its great priority? It binds all the other gifts together and it takes us right back to the beginning of the text. It's our motivation for using the gifts we've been given. Praise be to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose great love led him to save us and give us eternal life. Amen.
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and in his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope encourage your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. Amen.